This podcast is sponsored by Click Playground. This free programming environment lets you explore and test your data-driven app ideas using Click's engine and APIs. The goal? Less query writing and more efficiency with associative indexing. Visit playground.click.com to learn more and see it for yourself. Welcome to the next edition of the InfoQ podcast. My name is Wes Rice. I'm the chair of QCon and Community Advocate. Today I'm here with Randy Schaub. Randy is the vice president of engineering at Stitch Fix. Prior to Stitch Fix, he was at places like Google as the director of engineering and cloud computing. He was a CTO and co-founder of Shopily, and he has been a chief engineer and distinguished architect at eBay. So he's been in the Valley quite a while and has seen companies in all different sizes. Randy is also a co-chair for QCon New York, which has saw its largest group and its largest overall rating jump this past June. Randy, thanks for joining the InfoQ podcast. Thanks for having me, Wes. So about a month ago, I tweeted out something and I tagged you in it. And it was that um, it was a comment that that I made. I was talking to my wife about Stitch Fix and specifically it was about data science and how Stitch Fix does um, some of the things there. And you got to be really careful about doing that because before I knew it, I had a box on my front porch with Stitch Fix all over it. So I'm now a customer. Awesome. So that's one of the things that I kind of find really interesting. It's really uh, impressive to me about Stitch Fix is data science. But before we get into that question, why don't you tell us a bit about Stitch Fix and kind of the role that Stitch Fix is serving in the market? Yeah, sure. So Stitch Fix reimagines retail, particularly for clothing. So we're an online styling service. So rather than going to a place online or going to a physical store and going through the clothes that are there, what you do with Stitch Fix is when you sign up for our service, you fill out a pretty detailed survey of the kinds of things that you like and you don't like. Um, and we, we have, uh, we'll choose uh, for you the things that we think you're going to enjoy based on the millions of customers that we have already. Um, and as you mentioned, as I'll talk about more, we use a ton of data science in that, uh, in that process. So uh, when your wife signed up, Um, She filled out a 60 to 70 question survey that asked her, like I said, her likes and dislikes, the kinds of styles she likes, her size, um, colors she would uh, would wear or not wear, um, everything you'd want to know if you were going to choose some clothing for somebody. Um, And that goes into our algorithms. And then our our, our algorithms make personalized recommendations based on all the things we know about our other customers on behalf of your wife. And then um, the, the key other aspect is that uh, there's a human element as well. So we have 3,200 human stylists that are all around the United States, and they're the ones that actually choose the five items that go into the box that go to your wife. Um, and so what we like is that it's this combination of art and science. Yeah. Um, we think that modern companies is, combines what machines are really good at, which is chugging through all those 60 to 70 questions times the millions of customers that we have, um, and but combining that with the human element of the stylists and figuring out what things go together, what things are on trend, what things are appropriate for your wife's profession or um, other things that, you know, the machine wouldn't know about. So, and what we've, we've found is the humans are much better with the machines and the machines are much better with the humans. So it's a win-win on both sides. Well, it's definitely working because she kept everything that was in the box. That's what we want to hear. So I think when I, I talked to uh, Stefan Kravchik, he leads algorithm development there at Stitch Fix. And if I remember right, he said there's 80 data scientists at Stitch Fix. That's an enormous number given the size of the company. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I say in words that we've given a lot of, uh, made a lot of investment into the data science and algorithmic side. And 
the proof is in is in the resources that we uh, that we dedicate. So yeah. the engineering side, which I run, is about sixty engineers. There are, but like you say, there are eighty data scientists and algorithm developers. So as far as I'm aware, that ratio of actually more data science versus engineering is unique in the industry. That's it's amazing. it's certainly unique in uh, in retail and e-commerce because I pretty much know all those companies. Um, but it may well be unique in our industry overall. Um, and again, we make, we make such a huge investment in the data science because it makes a huge difference in outcomes. Like we were able to guess those, uh, those five things that your, your wife would have liked exactly because of all the work uh, that those people are doing. Yeah, that's amazing. We could probably talk for a long time there, but let's switch over to the side that, that you run. So you run the engineering group. What, um, what does that look like there at Stitch Fix? Yeah, so uh, like I said, we have 60 people uh, in our engineering group. Uh, we're headquartered in San Francisco. Um, most of our engineers are actually remote, though, so they're, uh, they're uh, all around the country. Organizationally, we, um, we have teams that are, that are directly paired with pieces of the business. So for our business, that's, we have a team that builds software for the people that buy the clothes. We call those merchandisers. We have a team that builds software for our warehouses and inventory management because once we buy the clothes, we store it in warehouses that we own. Um, we have a team that builds software for those stylists, those 3,200 stylists that are making those choices, those personalized choices on behalf of our clients. Um, and we build. We have teams, a team that builds software for our customer support people. We have a team that builds our website and our mobile app. Um, so our, our model is to have um, small uh, full stack teams that are responsible directly for a business function. Very nice. So what kind of stack are you building on? Yeah, so our stack uh, is primarily Ruby on Rails on top of Postgres. Um, we're starting to do more backend services in Go. We maintain about 30 different applications, uh, all on roughly the same stack um, that are targeted at particular areas of uh, business function. Um, and so one of the one of the things that we have avoided from um, uh, sort of mistakes of the past in the Ruby community is we don't we didn't build a monolithic application. We built a bunch of individual sort of they're not quite micro applications, a, a la microservices, but they're mini applications that are responsible for particular areas. So what what does that mean when you say a mini application? What would it look like if I was looking in uh, into Stitch Fix? Yeah, so I mean we have so we have uh, maybe our largest application is the is the application that our stylists use that right. um, that help um, surface the personalized recommendations for the stylists and help them to choose the individual items of clothing for our particular clients. Um, but uh, in our warehouse, we don't have like one warehouse application. We have an application that does returns than when people send stuff back, and we have an application that does our uh, uh, various other functions in the warehouse. Uh, we have a picking application. So the, somebody who's actually going through and picking those uh, five items that go in the box, like there's a special application for them. You know, that, that's the idea is like build an application for a particular function right. and do exactly what you need for that thing and no more. Right. Makes sense. One of the things that, that we talked about before is that you have no product managers at Stitch Fix. How does, how's that working? Yeah. So, um, yeah, one of the things that's a bit unique about how we work at Stitch Fix is that we uh, we want to make sure that our engineers are fully engaged and involved directly with the business partners or the customers that they serve. Um, and so one of the things that we found works really well for for us is that we don't have people that are responsible for collecting requirements from our customers that are independent of building the systems. Right. So we have the people that are building the particular mini application go talk directly to the customer that they're serving 
and meet their needs directly. And one of the things we found is by cutting out that middle person, we're able to build exactly the things that our customers need and no more. And actually often, when we have the conversation with uh, one of our customers about what problem we're trying to solve, um, sometimes the solution isn't technology at all, right? Sometimes yeah. it's, oh, well, we could make this change in the business process, or we could do this thing manually for a while, or, you know, there's lots of different ways of solving problems. And our goal as engineers at SitchFix is to solve problems rather than um, solve problems first rather than sort of build technology first, if that makes sense. Yeah, We're absolutely. very happy to write code, but that's not always the answer. Yeah, absolutely. You uh, get them out there to develop an empathy with the customer so that they can really understand the problems that they're, that they're working with. Makes total sense. Exactly. It means we build the right things. And also, frankly, it's a lot more fun. I mean, the engineers <laughs> here so enjoy the direct contact with the people that they're helping. And it means that when you're making what, you know, minor modifications or like you're actually helping somebody do their job. So. Yeah, absolutely. When, I, when I've been able to do that, it's been uh, you actually get to see the impact, the benefit of what you're doing. And it's more job rewarding, I think. Exactly. It's super, super motivating. So let me ask you, though, you haven't always been at a place that has no product managers. You've been in a lot of other places that, that definitely has product owners and managers that, that actually are that intermediary step between the customer and the actual development team. What, um, I guess, what advice do you give developers who want to get out there and talk to the customers but may not necessarily be in an organization that supports it? What can they do to kind of help start molding the company towards that direction? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, I mean, this is the honestly, this is the first place I've worked at that doesn't have doesn't have product management. Yeah. So I'm very used to I'm very used to how how to operate in that role. Um, like I say, one of the things I really like about this model is, and that that our engineers really like, is the direct ownership that they have and the sort of the direct direct feedback that we get, both positive and negative, by interacting directly with the business partners. So yeah, so what advice would I have of somebody who works in a more traditional organization? Um, it's rare, if you want to talk to customers, it's rare that somebody will prevent you from doing that, right? right? Um, and so first and foremost, I would, I would try to do that. Um, because so often by working directly with the person that you're building your systems for, uh, you can learn so much about what actually matters and how they work. and um, there's there's no downside to that. So, um, I mean, that's the first thing that I would recommend. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Stitch Fix has been around, I, I think uh, you had told me before, about five years or so. And everything that we've talked about is pretty modern. Is, is Stitch Fix kind of a greenfield application? It's like almost a greenfield application. Is it a greenfield company where you can just start off with all these tools and techniques that are really... Um, I guess adopting DevOps like TDD and CD is it is it a company that just started from ground zero that way? It did. Uh, so yeah. So like as you mentioned, you know, we're very heavily into test driven development. We practice continuous delivery. Uh, we practice DevOps, and happy to talk about all those things in more yeah. detail. And and we started this way. So you know, there's no argument that it's a lot easier when you start. Uh, start these practices from the beginning. Um, but everybody who worked, everybody who, uh, who worked here has worked at places where we didn't practice those things. And right. so they learned, they learned what, what that means. Um, one, one thing I would say is, uh, and I've been at plenty of organizations that have adopted those, these practices over time. Um, what I will say is these practices work synergistically with each other and they build, they build on each other. So, um, the practice of test-driven development makes the continuous delivery work, and the practice of the same people building the code as operating the code makes those both both those things uh, that much more powerful and better. Um, and so, as as companies are 
stepping their toes into these into these waters. I just suggest that you'll 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 get the most benefit out of them when you can adopt them all. And I would not suggest go zero to sixty in you know in one second, um, but recognize that it's a long journey. If you're if you're not in a if you're not in a place where um, uh, where these are these practices are practiced. Um, there's there's a ways to you you're not going to get the full benefit until you you have gone a decent a decent ways. Sure, makes total sense. So I remember a lot of the stuff that I that I've heard you present on and talk about are microservices, and I remember uh-huh. oh like 2014 or so Martin Fowler wrote a blog post I think it was called Microservice Prerequisites where he kind of famously said you must be this tall to use microservices. Right. Uh, in, in that, he talked about kind of things like rapid provisioning, basic monitoring, rapid application development. Is that enough today or is there a new bar? Do you have to be a new height to do microservices today? Yeah, good. Um, well, so I've been at a couple of companies that I, I would call uh, that pra- that I would say practice microservices. Google is a great example, but we practice them here at, at Stitchfix. Um, the additional. So Martin is wonderful and he and I have talked a lot about um how to make microservices work well. So I agree, I agree strongly that, you know, being able to provision quickly and being able to deploy applications quickly are absolutely prerequisites for being successful in microservices. You've got to be able to move quickly and deploy quickly in order to get the benefits. And then similarly, you know, if you're moving from a monolith, if you don't have good monitoring and good monitoring practices, when you're going to go from monitoring one thing that you probably understand to monitoring 10 things or 100 things that you know are, are maybe less e- less easily understood if you if you don't have those good practices so for sure you need both those the additional thing i would add though uh, would be on the organizational side so in order to get the benefit so what are you looking for out of microservices right you're looking for feature velocity you're looking for the ability for individual teams to move quickly and independently of each other you're looking for independent deployment so not everybody is all coupled together to select one monolithic release process um, and you're looking for scaling right so you're looking for the ability to um, scale into uh, scale pieces of the infrastructure and um, individual applications and services independently of each other. Um, and to get those benefits, you need to be in an organization uh, that's that is itself organized in a bit like microservices, right? So Conway's law, as um, people have probably heard of, um, says that uh, the the architecture re- reflects your organization. So in particular, that the communication paths within your organization are going to be directly reflected in your architecture. So if you have a monolithic organization where you know you have fifty people that are all kind of one monolithic team, you're going whether you like it or not, you're going to end up building a piece of monolithic software. Yes. But if on the other hand you have a, as we do with Stitch Fix and is also practiced at Google, if you have small uh, teams that have well defined areas of responsibility, that that sort of full stack own that particular area of the business or area of the applications uh, and own that application end to end, that's going to make the micro, that's going to give you the, the organizational uh, capabilities to make microservices work. So right. it's sort of the organization, you can, you can get the benefits of microservices or in order to get the benefits of microservices, you need to have an organization that is similarly organized. Does that right. make sense? It makes total sense. Absolutely. It makes sense. But, but let me ask you, the people listening to this podcast, they're architects, they're developers, they're not the ones organizing the companies. How, so I hear you and it makes total sense, but what can I do as a developer to kind of shift my organization in a way that will support microservices? Yeah, cool. I mean, I think there are two things that you can do if you're sort of in the middle, in the middle level. I mean, one is don't assume that your engineering leadership sort of 
magically knows these concepts. Like yeah. it's something that you should raise up to to the leadership. Like, hey, if we're, you know, I'm assuming that we're talking about moving to microservices. So, hey, if we're going to move to microservices, shouldn't we organize along these lines? Like that's something that as an architect or as a lead uh, in a company, like you should be asking those questions. Right. But the other thing is within the scope of the organization that you control, you can absolutely do this thing, right? So you have eight people or 10 people in the area that you're working, for example, rather than having that be one team that works on, you know, one thing, subdivide those teams into working on, you know, this service or that service or that application. So even if you don't control the entire organization, you can organize the work of the area of the scope, you know, that you're working in um, along these lines. And you'll absolutely see the benefits when you do. Sure. I, I remember one of the, um, a workshop I think you gave was all about scaling organizations and technology together. Um, are microservices something that you should start with today, or is it something that you adopt at certain phase in an organization's life cycle? Yeah, that's perfect. And, and actually a very apt conver uh, apt question for uh, Stitch Fix, honestly. Um, so Stitch Fix um, started, well, still, Stitch Fix doesn't have a monolithic application, as I mentioned, but we do have a monolithic database. So all yeah. of the interesting uh, uh, all of the interesting entities that we operate on in, in Stitch Fix, so clients and fixes, we say, you know, the shipments that we make, all those things are, you know, in one shared database. And we are in the process of going through and pulling that apart and, and creating microservices out of them. Um, so it's a very apt question. Well, should we have started with microservices in the beginning? And answer, no. In fact, hell no. Yeah. Uh, when, you are sm when you're small, you're, you should be, you know, first you want to figure out whether there's the thing that you're building is actually going to be valuable, right? So do you have product market fit? Is there is there a problem that you're actually solving that people are willing to pay for? Um, you know, then then it's about delighting. Then you get some customers, and you and what you should be doing is doubling down on delighting those initial customers and sort of uh, ex, I call it the execution phase. Yeah. Uh, execute executing on uh, on the model that you that you've defined. Um, and in neither of those situations are you trying to solve a problem of scaling, either a, pro a problem of scaling the size of your team or scaling the organization or sorry, scaling the technology to meet um, increased customer demand. You know, microservices solve a scaling problem, right? They solve an organizational scaling problem and a technological scaling problem. And those are not the problems that you have early on in the startup. Right. Um, when you are at the point, as we are, when you're in the 0.1% or 0.01% of startups, now's the time to shift to, uh, to consider shifting to um, having, we have now the problems of, scaling the organization and scaling the technology. And now is the right time to think about microservices. But it would have been completely wrong um, for Stitch Fix and then for other companies that are similar to have done that from the beginning. So what are some of the triggers? What are some of the things that you start to see from a monolith, whether it's application or database? But when you start to see that it's time that maybe microservices is something that we want to move to. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've seen a couple of them. So the first and foremost one typically tends to be feature velocity. Yeah. So the the other way to think about that is if it's too if it's really painful to bring on new engineers and make them productive, or if it's in, or if it's very difficult to make the existing teams uh, productive because they're stepping on each other's toes inside the monolith, that's a good warning sign that you need to you need to think about breaking it up. Another really common sign is around scaling. So you end up not being able like in the monolithic world, you're not able to continue to vertically scale the application or the, the database or whatever your monolith is, um, you're not able to continue to scale that. And so for scaling reasons alone, you might, you might consider breaking it up into, 
uh, what we call microservices. And then those are the two most common. The other, the other one that's also common is what I'll call deployment independence. And that's um, you want different, different parts of your overall system to have different life cycles, right? Like I want to be able to deploy the website a lot more quickly than deploy the warehouse applications or something like that. And so it's, you know, uh, when you have situations like that, where you have, you know, radically different life cycles between different parts of your overall system, that's another, another indicator that you might want to consider breaking it into smaller pieces. That makes total sense. So, okay. So say you, you've made this decision, you've moved to microservices. What infrastructure do you really need to be able to have in place to be able to support it? Infrastructure is not the right word. What types of things do you need there to be able to observe the system to make sure that you can debug, troubleshoot, trace problems that you have when you move to microservices? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you can, you didn't ask this, but I think you can do microservices with any stack, but you need to solve some fundamental problems. You need to solve the problems, like you say, of observability and monitoring and alerting of a distributed system, right? Yeah. So now it's not one thing, it's 10 things or 20 things or 100 things. And there are there are lots of different ways of approaching that problem. And it, it's not like adopt this one product and you're good. Um, there are lots of great products that work in, that work in those areas, but you have to adopt one of them, you know, or solve it yourself. Like the, the ability to observe the system from afar, right? The ability to, I'm sitting at my laptop and not logging into the system or the database to figure out what's going on, that's a critical critical aspect to success. Yeah. Did that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So now that's that's kind of deploying it. What um what about operating and being successful with it? Are there any patterns or anti-patterns that that you've seen or that you might suggest for people? In terms of operations, yeah. So you know, standard patterns around operating distributed systems. Like I, you know, one example I was giving is if I have to, if I have to SSH into a machine in order to debug something, like yeah. that's a good indicator that it's not operable or manageable yet. We didn't quite talk about this, but one of the, uh, we didn't connect these two dots, but the con the ability to do um, continuous delivery, which itself depend, which itself depends on automated testing, that's critical. And why is that critical? It's because when you notice problems in the deployed system, you want to be able to fix those things quickly. Like I don't, I, I, I think it would be difficult to be successful in a microservices world if you had a monthly release cycle or a six monthly release cycle or something mm -hmm. like that, right? Because it would, it would, you'd have to go that long before you could, um, yeah. you could take advantage of changes. Yeah. Um, and again, okay. it's back to what I was saying before, like all the, all these practices are synergistic and, you know, reinforce each other, right? The test driven development, the mm -hmm continuous delivery, the DevOps, all these things are self-reinforcing. So what is your take? There, there's a lot of discussion about things like uh, RPC versus HTTP. There's discussion about binary versus JSON, about whether you can you know, actually see what's going across the wire. Uh, there's all kinds of questions in that kind of space. What is, what is your take on uh, that whole argument? Yeah, I'm not super religious about it, in all honesty. Um, we, everything we do at Stitch Fix is HTTP and JSON. Um, at Google, where I worked, you know, um, that was an RPC style with the binary protocol, um, which people now in the open source world can use it in the form of gRPC. So happy to now have that be available to the broader world. Um, I don't think one. I don't think there's one model that works and one that doesn't. It sort of whatever whatever solves the problems that you have. So you know, at Google scale. Uh, obviously, every byte counts because it's multiplied by trillions and quadrillions of bytes flying over the wire. Um, so Google could not survive if they did a non-binary protocol, right? That's just, you know, that would be silly. Um, 
at Stitch Fix scale, you know, that's our big problem is not network bandwidth. So the ability to the fact that we leverage JSON means that it's really easy for us to um, uh, to produce and consume services in any stack. Um, so that has that has huge advantages. And obviously, you know, HTTP super firewall friendly and um, you know supported by every stack is, is also really helpful. But you sort of implicitly mention like whatever whatever sort of protocol and network scheme you, um, uh, what's, whatever scheme you use for, for uh, inter-service communication, you've got to be able to inspect it and look at it. And Google has great tools for do, even if it's a binary, even though it's a binary protocol, it's really easy to unpack the protocol buffers and see them in a human readable way. And, and that's the fundamental thing that you need, right? I guess what I would say is, you know, to maybe anticipate the next question, <laughs> what would I start, what would I start with? Yeah. I mean, I would start with the, the obvious thing to start with is the HTTP JSON because it's universal and it's human readable and, you know, it's, it's commonly understood and, and appreciated. You don't need to get in the same way as like you can start with a monolith and then get fancy. <laughs> it's a, it's, a, it's similar with, with a, these protocols. Like I think you can start with something that is really simple and really easy to get to get going and is, is human readable directly without any additional tooling. And then as the problems become, okay, network bandwidth is our bottleneck. All right, well, now we got to solve that problem with... Um, and one possible solution is, you know, shrinking the bandwidth by uh, using a binary protocol. I, I don't think there's a great advantage to starting and uh, starting with that. Yeah, great advice. So I think I'm going to start to wrap up. Randy, is there uh, any parting thoughts or any words that you want to say? Well, uh, I guess I have to say that Stitch Fix is hiring. Um, <laughs> so and in, in all aspects of our business. So. Um, so yeah, you know, it's a huge, it's a growing company. If any of the things that I talked about here are interesting, then people should ping me because we're absolutely looking for engineers that like to build great products and um, uh, like to work in a data-driven environment. So we've been talking to Randy Shop, Vice President of Engineering at Stitch Fix. Randy, thanks for taking the time to chat with InfoQ Podcast. Thanks, Wes. This was really fun.